We had a moment in family history that those the extended Thompson family that will live on for a while. I'm sure I will tell this story at my mother's funeral. My four siblings and I have had some good-natured ribbing through the years about who was mom and dad's favorite child, and it continued on after dad passed away. There are four brothers. Our sister is the oldest, and she really has to be mom's favorite child. I mean, if you really get down to it, she's the one who lives there, takes care of mom, and we are all amazed, especially since dad died, how Elizabeth has taken care of our mother. But even Elizabeth, through the years, has referred to one little corner of my parents' house as St. Bob's Shrine, where there's like a picture there, you know, and my doctoral thesis or whatever. And so my siblings always say, like, Bob is the favorite child, and I, of course, have latched onto that. Well, the competition, the competition has lived on, and a week ago Friday, my younger brother David, who lives in Illinois, had gone to visit my, uh, my mother, and my mother's 91, and she goes to visit the old people at the nursing home. She teaches Sunday school every week. She drives. She lives independently. And so David had gone to visit her with three of his almost grown children, kind of young adult years, 20, give or take a, f- a couple of years. And uh, so David is going with mom with his kids to the nursing home. And before my mother can introduce David in typical David fashion, he goes like, I'm her favorite son. To which this lady uh, who was visiting there, her daughter, piped up and said, Oh, you must be Bob. (laughs) Yes! So I want to talk about Jesus' mother. Catholics and Orthodox believe that that in the perpetual virginity of Mary, which means she didn't have any other children, but Protestants generally believe that when the Gospels refer to Jesus' brothers and sisters, that these are indeed children that Mary had with Joseph uh, after Jesus was born. So she was a virgin up until the time that Jesus was born, but after that she had children the natural way. So who do you suppose was Mary's favorite son? Who was her favorite child? Now, like any mother, if you had asked her, she would have said, oh, they're all my favorite. I can't choose one. But I mean, come on, Mary. Really? Because Jesus is your firstborn. He's a son, and there's something about that son that bonds to a mother. And besides, your son is kind of unusual, Mary. He's the one that Gabriel said would be the son of God. And he would save his people from their sins. And he's the one that angels showed up and said that the shepherds sang glory to God in the highest over him. And wise men brought him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And besides, except for gender, Jesus and Mary, I would think, shared exactly the same DNA. So really, Mary, he has to be your favorite son. Today in our study of the Apostles' Creed, we come to the phrase where we learn that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And as you picture the scene in John 19, as we unfold it for you, I want you to imagine it through the eyes of Mary, who was watching her oldest, her firstborn, her favorite, as the scene unfolds. Now, there are times when I tell you that having your Bible open might actually be a distraction to the way I'm preaching the sermon. Today's not one of those days. So if you would find the Pew Bible or your Bible or your electronic Bible and find again John chapter 19 in the Pew Bible, it's page 
1684, if you've put your bulletin away. Because I think as we play out, there are five different vignettes here in John 19. And most of them I want to relate to, to the question, what would this be like through Mary's eyes? One of the things we note, by the way, in John's gospel, that he's, he's, he never names her. He never calls her Mary. But we know who she is from the other gospels. So here's an interesting point when we get right into John chapter 19. John, like the other gospel writers, is very reserved about the details of the crucifixion. You have probably heard sermons. I have preached sermons mo- several times on the crucifixion of Jesus and given you the, the gory details of what happened. What was it like to be flogged? What was it like to be crucified? What were the physical things that were happening in Jesus' body? Do you notice that John doesn't do that, that the other gospel writers don't do that. Three times John says they crucified him, but he never tells you about, you know, the flesh hanging from his body or the nails piercing his, his hands and feet or the struggle that it was to breathe. John doesn't do that. Pastor Paul commented last week that an emotional response doesn't change lives. The people who made the Passion of the Christ 15 years ago didn't all become believers because they, you know, uh, watched and endured and reflected on the physical suffering of Christ. Sympathy is not faith. So the gospel writers want us to know that the physical suffering of Jesus is not the point. So what we're going to do through these five vignettes is ask, what are the stories that he tells? And to me, when you're talking about what crucifixion is, and you're talking about soldiers gambling, or his mom there, or, you know, whatever, I'm thirsty. What's the, why is that more important than the details? Because each of them gives us a glimpse into what's really happening here on the, on what we, the day that we call Good Friday. So let's talk about these soldiers, and we could have picked it back up with verse 16. We cut our reading a little bit short and started with verse 23. But we've got these four hardened, seasoned Roman soldiers who are basically living out another day at the office. What intrigues John, though, he could have talked about their callousness over doing their job, you know, as they nail his wrist to the cross. He's not interested in all of that. John focuses uh, attention on a game that they play. So think about that. They're, they're basically the equivalent of casting, of throwing dice here. So they're casting lots to decide who gets his, and the phrase in the, the word in the NIV is undergarment. But we're not talking about briefs or boxers here. This is a full-length, hand-woven, seamless tunic that could be worn as your only article of clothing. In reality, most people had five articles of clothing. There was your turban, whatever you wore on your head. There was a girdle that you wore underneath this. There was an outer garment, some kind of robe over top of the tunic, and then there were your shoes. So if there were four soldiers, it would have made sense that they could each, you know, have their pick of the other four items. But they come to a fifth item, and number one, there's only one item, and number two, it is seamless. So they can't exactly divide it into four parts, it would ruin it. And the the, the tunic actually was considered to be a rather precious possession. And oftentimes, hear this now, it was woven by one's mother just before she sent her son out into the world. So I want you to feel this story through Jesus's mother's lens as she watches these soldiers playing a game of dice to see who's going to get this seamless, probably somewhat valuable article of clothing that once they, you know, washed it up, might give them years of wear. So they cast lots for it. 
So now Jesus' mother watches as he is stripped naked in all likelihood. And all these other items are distributed. And what's important to John is not like, oh, and then, you know, so-and-so won the bet. That's not what's important to him. What's important to him is the connection that this weaves then throughout Scripture. And so John sees this whole story not as just what happens on that day, but he sees this as the tying together of threads that happen throughout the Old Testament. And sometimes I I chafe a little bit at the word prediction because it's not necessarily the point that everything is predicted, but everything weaves together into the fabric of God's redemptive plan. And it happens here that even this, this garment, this seamless garment that is not torn, that they cast lots, is something that it also connects with God's plan. This was no surprise to God. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, verse 24. And then we get to the second vignette that John lays out for us. And this is among the most familiar as Jesus transfers care of his mother to his best friend, presumably John, the writer of the gospel. And John now widens the camera lens. So he's not looking just at Jesus on the cross or even at the soldiers who are close by, he takes our eyes off of that momentarily and shifts it to four women who are standing nearby. They include, he tells us, Jesus' mother, and again, he doesn't name her, maybe so as not to confuse her with the other Marys who are there. His aunt, who is most likely the mother of John, the gospel writer, so his cousin's mother, and he's in the scene as well, And then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So they're all important, but one of them is more important for John's purposes than the other. And Jesus notices her, and they lock eyes. Now again, pause for a moment. With your boy on that cross, and you lock eyes for a moment, and he sees you suffering. She's absolutely powerless to alleviate his suffering at that moment or to alter his physical destiny as any mother would want to do. Can I not do something about this? So we want to recall many stories in the Gospels, particularly in Luke, about her, but John has included in his Gospel only one other story about her. So all those other things that you know about her with the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and even the fact that she and, and her other children came to see Jesus and, you know, he said, this is this, my real family or the people who are my disciples. None of those are included in the John's Gospel. John's Gospel only includes two stories about Jesus' mother. This one here... And you remember what the first one was? It's at the wedding in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2. So back in John chapter 2, there's Jesus just bursting onto the scene, and he and his mother attend a wedding. And we don't know who all else was there because they don't really come into the story. But there again, uh, she comes up to him and she says, they've run out of wine. And he says to her in so many words, why is that my problem? And he says a little bit nicer, nicer than that. But he says, woman... Why do you concern me? Now, woman sounds like a term of disrespect. It's not a term of disrespect, but it is a term of distance. And what he's saying is, just because you're my mom, I'm not going to fix this problem. Well, she is sort of undeterred and says to them, you know, do whatever he tells you. And Jesus turns the water into wine. 
So that's the only other story we have in John's gospel until we get to John chapter 19 and we find this story. And once again, he addresses her as woman. Some of your translations will say dear woman because, again, it can be a term of, of endearment, but it's not mom, right? It's not, it's, it's not disrespect, but neither is it a connection. She's, he's actually placing distance between her and him. And back in chapter 2, he had said, my hour is not yet come. And notice in verse 27 here that it may say, my time is not yet come in your version, but it's the same word. It's hour. Now the hour has come. And from that hour, this disciple took her into his own home. So what's happening here? Jesus may be his mother's favorite, but she has been learning that she can't see herself as his favorite. If she were his primary concern at this moment, I mean, wouldn't you want to alleviate her suffering? Wouldn't you want to come down from that cross? And if Jesus is just thinking about how can I, how can I help my mom get through this, you know, he could have blinded her eyes, he could have supernaturally placed her somewhere else, and he certainly could have come down from the cross and said, okay, this is too hard on mom, I'm not doing this. But she's not his favorite. I'm going to come back to that question in a moment. What she does, uh, excuse me, what he does is he says to her, what you're going to need when I'm gone is you're going to need community. So John, this is your mother now, Mother, this is your son, is what he says to her. So what he's doing is providing for her by offering her community. And what he's saying is the same thing he said to his disciples the night before, wash one another's feet, love one another. I'm going to be gone physically. You're going to need each other. Do that for each other. And that scene is more important to John than the nails going through his hands and his feet. Then we pick it up in verse 28. In this vignette, Jesus speaks again twice, and he first says, I'm thirsty. And again, can't you imagine this through his mother's eyes and ears? She's thinking, can't somebody at least do a little something? He's thirsty. Uh, I realize he's, I can't do anything about his suffering, but let's do something. And so she's having to watch this. The most common way to understand this, the way, again, I have preached in the past, is that Jesus is physically thirsty, that what we see here is uh, an indication of his humanity. So his humanity suffers on the cross, and certainly underneath the Near Eastern sun and with all the blood loss from the flogging and the crucifixion, that Jesus' body was dehydrated and he needed something to drink, particularly if he was going to say something which he wanted to do. And I don't deny any of that is true, but John is a master of connecting everything in his gospel. And he's told you stories all along that are really reaching a crescendo here. And it's not just the Old Testament he wants to tie in. He wants to tie in all of these other stories that he's been telling you. And do you remember where else the subject of thirst came up in the gospel of John? Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says to her, I'm thirsty. And she says, well, let me get you water. And he goes like, you don't understand. There's a thirst that you can't quench on your own, but I have living water. And if you knew who was speaking to you, 
you would ask me and I would give you living water because when you have my water, you will never thirst again. So John has set this up in a moment and the thirst that he experiences on the cross is not primarily a physical thirst. It is a spiritual thirst because Jesus is being cut off from his father for our sins at that moment. This is John's version of when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in another gospel? I'm thirsty. I need God at this moment, and I'm cut off from my Father. This is the only moment in eternity or time when Jesus has an unquenched thirst for God. And it happens right here, and he says, I'm thirsty. And so the the soldiers don't fully understand that, and they moisten his lips and his throat with some cheap wine. This is not the same as the the gall that he had refused earlier in another gospel because it would have deadened his pain. This is simply to moisten his lips. He receives that. And what's important to John, once again, is is the link between everything that God has done and said before in Scripture and this moment. So what's not obvious in most English translations is that there's a, there's a verb that occurs three times in these three verses, and its root is telos, which means end or goal or completion. So verse 28 should read, after this, knowing that now that everything had been completed, in order that scripture might be completed, he says, I thirst, and skip down to verse 30. When, therefore, he took the wine, Jesus said, it has been completed. In a word, done. It's actually one Greek word that he speaks. So you can just say he's on the cross, he he takes the wine, and he says, done. Accomplished. Finished. Ended. What is completed at this moment? Everything that he came to do. He came into the world with a mission. John 3.17 says to not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And it was done. His incarnation, his sinless mortal life, his identification with our race, his sharing of our suffering, his sacrifice on our behalf, the thirstiness of a soul that springs from, uh, from whom springs the very water of life. It was all done. It's complete. And for his watching mother, it was complete as well. And then we come to verse 31, which is his fourth vignette. And it's now getting late on Friday afternoon. That doesn't matter to the Roman soldiers, but it matters a lot to the Jews. And they want not only Jesus, but these other crucified victims to be removed from the crosses before sundown because it marked the beginning not only of a Sabbath, but of a special Sabbath. This was the Sabbath connected to Passover week. So crucifixion was designed to last for days and uh, somewhere between 36 and 72 hours, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. But the Jews don't want these bodies up when Sabbath hits at about 6 p.m. that evening. And they knew that if you break the legs of the victims that they will no longer be able to push up for air and they will quickly suffocate. So they go to Pilate and ask for consent to break the legs of all three. And when they come back, they do this. Now, again, his mother is still there. I'll show you why in just a moment, why I know that in just a moment. But his mother is still there. And I need you to imagine that his mother is watching these soldiers take this metal mallet and slam both legs of these other thieves so that their bodies will droop. And then they can, they can gasp for air. They can no longer get it. And imagine her thoughts and feelings as they they approach Jesus and they're ready to do this to her son. And she's thinking, like, hasn't he suffered enough already? But when they come to him, 
he's already dead, reinforcing again something else he had already said in the gospel, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord, John 10, 18. And so instead, just to be sure, they puncture his side and outflow blood and water. So this is medical, physical evidence that he was already dead. But once again, John is tying together the themes of his gospel. Not only had he told the women at the well, if you want water, you come to me, and now water is coming out of his body, but he had also said that drinking his blood is eternal life in John chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus, Jesus, John is showing us here that out of Jesus come the very things that we need in order to have life, his blood and, and the water of life. I think that's John's intent. There are two wonderful hymns that come to mind. One is from Fanny Crosby, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. And then Rock of Ages, Augustus Toplady, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. And we watch this scene in awe, and we realize that as the blood and the water flow from him, that is for our sins. And John actually says in verse 37 that he is there, the one who was, saw all of this. And so if he was uh, to take charge of Mary, that's why I think she's still there with John as, he, as she's watching all of this happen. And for John, this is further evidence that all of this is true. And the reason is that his death is so critical to the stories that are going to follow when we get to Resurrection Sunday. So this is one of the hints where he's saying, this is all true, I'm telling you. I saw it for myself. The blood and the water came. He was really dead. And then we come to the final vignette in John 19 related to uh, this text and this section of the Creed. It's a part of the story that doesn't get as much attention. So typically we go in our thinking and in our preaching and in our worship from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. But the Apostles' Creed rightly points attention to Jesus' burial. And when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says the gospel is this, he says he died, uh, he was crucified and died, and he was buried. And then on the third day he rose again. So burial is important to the story. And what happens here is that there are two wealthy, prominent Jewish leaders who are carrying for Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They ask Pilate for permission to take charge of Jesus's body, which he grants. And now we know a couple things. One, we know that not all of the Jewish religious leaders opposed Jesus or disbelieved him. We also know that Joseph had been afraid to admit that he was a believer. Was he silent at the trial? Was he a coward? Was he, uh, was he not there? Did he absent himself or did they not invite him? We don't know, but he was a secret believer of Jesus because he feared the Jews. It's a wonderful lesson here because God redeems and uses our fears. He even uses our sins in the times we pull back. If Joseph had, Joseph had openly believed in Jesus or opposed his crucifixion, all of this may not have played out in the same way, right? He could have been marginalized in advance, and so it's part of what needs to happen here. And we also, of course, learn the rest of the story of Nicodemus. We hadn't learned it back in chapter 3. He seems to, to have embraced Jesus. And remarkably, these two come forward after Jesus is crucified. You'd think at that point they'd go like, oh, now, maybe we were wrong. 
Instead, they step up and use their resources. So the fact that Pilate allowed this to happen may have been evidence that, again, Pilate really believed that Jesus was innocent because criminals, when they were crucified, were just cast into a mass grave. But they request the body, and Pilate allows them to take him. The quantity of myrrh and aloes was something I don't know that I'd ever noticed until somebody pointed out in a Bible study this week. So just sit there for a moment. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Somebody has uh, estimated this as somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000 worth of spices that they brought to anoint the body of Jesus before they placed him in the tomb. The unused tomb is important because, verse 41, there could be no question that on Sunday morning, you know, there were lots of bodies in the tomb, and you just chose the wrong shelf when you thought the tomb was empty, right? There's no question of that. This is a brand new tomb. Nobody's ever laid in that. And when the tomb is empty, it has to be Jesus who has uh, risen from the dead. So let me come back to where I started this sermon. Is it important to affirm that Jesus was Mary's favorite child? No. So I get it. All the bombs are going like, don't say things like that. Every child is my favorite. And I will tell you that my, uh, my confirmands know that year after year, some of them have heard, or their parents have heard, that every year I say to my confirmation class on Confirmation Sunday, you are my favorite. And it's true, actually. I mean it because the favorite class is the one that I'm leading right now. And as a pastor, my favorite church member is the one who needs me right now. That's the person that gets my attention. So don't you think that God thinks that way? What would it mean to you that at your moment of greatest need, you think of yourself as God's favorite child? And of course, because he's God, he actually doesn't have to choose, and he can give full attention to all of us. But from our vantage point, we can think of ourselves at any moment, but especially in our moment of greatest need, I'm his favorite. And when you wonder what it's like to be his favorite, you look again at the cross. If you ever doubt that, how much he loves you, he was... Mary's favorite son, but he was God's only son. And never forget that God gave his only son for you because he loved the world and you so much. Why else is it important that we reflect on the death and burial of Jesus other than the love of God? I love what the Apostle Paul does with this part of our faith. He hangs almost everything on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But like the gospel writers, he feels no need to go into the gory details of what happened that day because for Paul, that's not the point. Paul does want you to know that what describes in John, what John describes in chapter 19 matters to you every day of your faith life. And when you have embraced who Jesus is and what he did for you, you need to constantly come back to his death and burial. So this is from Romans chapter 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? He's already lifted up the gospel of grace. Christ died for your sins. We're justified by faith. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. We are those who have died to sin. And you're perking up going like, we we died to sin? How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When he died, we died. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what happened that day? John chapter 19, Good Friday, when Jesus was crucified, sin died. Death died. You died that day. The power of sin, which is fear and punishment and the control that it has over us, died that day. It breathed its last. It is finished. And you know what else died that day? Because you may say, Pastor Bob, I don't really live that every day. It seems like I keep struggling with sin and temptation. And I keep falling back and I, I, you know, I, I try and I, I make a, a turn over a new leaf and I try to do better. And I just don't. You know what else died that day? You know what was buried that day? Guilt was buried that day. Shame was buried in that tomb. And you never have to live one of your days as a believer, one of your moments as a believer, and say again, God, I blew it. And he's going like, yeah, you did, and I'm tired of you. He never sees you that way because of what happened in John chapter 19. He says, when you have trusted Christ to forgive all of your sins, when you have embraced him, I never see you through your guilt and shame. And you never have to live as if sin has power over you because sin died that day and guilt was buried that day and none of that came back from the grave when Jesus rose again. It stayed buried forever. That's the promise and the hope of John chapter 19. We're going to do something a little bit unusual today in that the choir is going to sing two different anthems, one immediately following the prayer here in a moment and then another one during the offering. And I want you to hear these songs. So the words are familiar to you whether or not you're familiar with Handel's Messiah. The first one is, we just wanted you to ponder what John says in chapter one of his gospel when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Handel has a marvelous way. He wrote, he wrote Messiah in the matter of a few weeks in 1741. And the music is astounding. But basically, the lyrics were kind of easy. He just borrowed lyrics from the Bible. And one of them that we want you to ponder is, look, look at this. Stand with Mary and look at the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And remember that he took away your sin. And then the second anthem we're going to sing is during the offering. And it is from Isaiah 53, verse 6. And I don't know that I'd ever noticed this until last night or this morning when I was, when I was reading this. But as Handel usually does, he, he stretches out these words over several pages. So Isaiah 53, 6 start, starts, uh, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Handel takes eight pages. We're going to sing eight pages of every musical way you can possibly reflect on the fact that we have all, like sheep, gone astray. His music goes astray. His music turns away so that you get this. Like, don't don't miss this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned away. And then the last page is like the exclamation point over the entire anthem. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let us pray together. And for a moment, just revel in who you are as a child of God, 
If you have never fully embraced Jesus and what he did for you on that day, do that in this moment of quiet. And if you have, friends, this is just another moment to remember who you are, whose you are, and that all of your guilt and shame and the power of sin was done that day, gone forever because of what Jesus did for us. That's the meaning of his death and his burial. Oh God, that you would give your only son that whoever believes in him, even such as we, would not perish but have everlasting life. We are in awe of your gift. We reflect again on who Jesus is, your eternal son, and what it cost him, but what it cost you, that we might have life forever. Thank you. In response of gratitude, our lives belong to you this day and forever. The difficult choices that we have to make, the hard times when it's hard to do the right thing, we do them because of gratitude. You have loved us this well. Why would we not give all that we have and are back to you? Amen.